Welcome to the 257th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion of face masks and public health in East Asia with my guests, Youngsub Choi and Jaewon Hyun. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today's special COVID Calls, one of the first of many to come to take place on Korea time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, April 9th, 2021, there are 2,899,782 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in South Korea from COVID-19 as of today is 1,758. Taiwan is reporting 10 deaths from COVID-19. Japan reports 9,286. China reports 4,636 deaths from COVID-19. And the United States as of today is reporting 560,065 deaths from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Carmen H. Kossoff of Syracuse, New York, died December 22nd, 2020. This was written by Carmen Kossoff's daughter, Lenore Sabal from Ben Salem, Pennsylvania, and this appeared on the Marked by COVID website. Carmen Kossoff, age 74, was born Carmen Haiti del Castillo on June 23, 1946, in the Amazon jungle city of Iquitos, Peru. She came to the United States at the age of 15 with her cousin in hopes of a better future. She passed away in Syracuse, New York on December 22, 2020, after fighting COVID-19 for 10 days in Upstate Community General Hospital. Carmen met the love of her life, Joel, in the 60s while living in Brooklyn with her grandmother. They were married in a beautiful ceremony on October the 4th, 1968, and spent 52 wonderful years together until her death. They raised two children together, son James, a daughter Lenore, building many happy memories and a wonderful family life in Scanadales, New York. Carmen loved with all her heart. She was devoted to her husband, children, and friends, and would do anything for them. She loved traveling, planting flowers and vegetables, baking, including the best apple pies, playing Scrabble, watching the New York Yankees, going to bingo and casinos, getting together with friends, and living life. She worked as an assistant cook in Scanadale's Central Schools for 20 years before retiring in 2005 there. She touched the lives of countless students, staff, and teachers. Her impact is forever. Carmen is survived by her loving husband, Joel, daughter Lenore, son-in-law, Michael Sabal, 
granddaughter Crystal and grandson John, along with numerous cousins, a brother, sisters, and various relatives throughout the United States and Peru. She is preceded in death by her parents, a sister, a brother, and her beloved son, James Edward Kossoff. Carmen was a beloved wife, mother, and friend who's deeply missed. Like thousands of others who are marked by COVID, her preventable death is due to one of the biggest failures in government history. Every politician and leader who isn't taking this pandemic seriously and who has given those an excuse to eschew safety measures like masks and social distancing should be held accountable. Her family hopes that Carmen's story can help save others and that her death is not in vain. Okay, I'm going to turn to my conversation for today, one I've really been looking forward to. Let me introduce my guests to you. Young Sub Choi is associate professor in the School of Liberal Arts at Seoul National University of Science and Technology. He's interested in technological artifacts in modern Korean history. Together with Hee-won Kim, Young Sub worked on the masking behavior in Korea during the current pandemic. Jae-won Hyun is Assistant Professor of Science and Technology Studies at Busan National University, South Korea. He's working on the post-World War II history of human biology and environmental sciences, with a focus on transnational connections between South Korea, Japan, and the United States. He's also making an effort to create a research collective in studying the history of mask wearing in East Asia. And as part of this effort, he organized a virtual workshop titled The Socio-Material History of Mask Societies in East Asia last October. The workshop outcome is now under review at the East Asian Science, Technology, and Society. Journal Youngsub Choi and Jaewon Yoon, thank you so much for joining me on COVID calls today. Okay, thank, thank you so you much for, for having me. I'd like to start the way I usually do, to find out where you're calling in from and see what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. Youngsub, let me start with you on that. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm connecting from uh, no one go in Seoul, which is in the northern part of Seoul, where my university campus is located. Uh, I came to campus today uh, riding a subway, and I had lunch uh, with my father-in-law downtown uh, in a restaurant. Uh, so uh, we are concerned uh, of the rising uh, number of confirmed cases uh, in recent days, uh, the so-called the fourth uh, wave uh, that is is uh, coming, uh, but people are mostly largely living their daily lives. Uh, we're still going to restaurants, we ride public transportation, and uh, of course, uh, most of my classes are uh, conducted online. So uh, that's the difference. But Your classes are online. Is is anyone? on campus, they're, so they're doing their work from campus and online, or is the campus sort of abandoned at this time? There are a lot more students on campus compared to, say, last fall. Hmm. Uh, so there are people on campus, uh, although uh, I think more than 90% of the classes are, are still conducted online. Hmm. Jaewon, just bringing you in on this, what's the situation looking like where you are? So I'm calling from Busan, which is the second largest city in South Korea after Seoul and located in the southeastern part of Korean Peninsula. 
And only this year, uh, Busan citizens also started the vaccination. And now only 85,000 people or about just 2% of the total city population has gotten the first dose of vaccine so far. And I think it's similar to the national average of Korea. And now all the people over 65 years old and health workers are the target population for vaccination. And younger people like me under 35 years old are expected to get shots from August and September on. And as Hyungsub said, uh, now uh, we are starting to become concerned about the fourth wave. And uh, even in Busan, we had uh, 95 new cases yesterday. And it's a quite a significant number, given that the total number of cases in Busan since uh, the early pandemic uh, is only 4,200 in total. Mm. So uh, although the government control has been more relaxed than other countries and even than other cities within South Korea, the Busan citizens also get tired of the continued quarantine measures. And that's the reason why you think the increasing number of cases here, I think. Let me ask you a question about communication. Uh, one thing I've been mm -hmm. really impressed by, and certainly a huge difference coming from the United States, is um, Getting text messages anytime there's confirmed cases here. I'm in Dijon. Is that similar where you're, Jaywon, let me start with you. Is that similar with you? Are you getting this kind of immediate communication when cases are confirmed? Yeah, and that's, in fact, it's a little bit uh, irritating or disturbing me uh, in my daily life because it's just like alarming, uh, just, just to, at least twice an hour. And even while driving, I have to get uh, that kind of a message. So I think that it's uh, convenient to deliver or to just so uh, to to make people be cautious uh, to some uh, some some infection situations, possible infection situations. But at the same time, uh, by doing so, many people feel that the coronavirus is not so much. Uh, dangerous as much as mm. we felt in the past year, I think. Mm. Young Sub, are you also getting these um, continual yeah. email oh. uh, contacts, text message contacts? Yes, same here. Uh, actually, uh, the phone that we carry is tracked uh, as to where we are at that particular moment. So if I am in say Gangnamgu, uh, I get uh, messages from nearby, and then if mm -hmm. I ride the subway to the northern part of the city, I get messages from from that part of the city. So that's how these messages follow you mm -hmm. wherever you go. Mm -hmm. It's extra. Thank you both for talking about that because I know that um, people who are watching who are in the United States would be rather astounded by these facts. Mm -hmm. Uh, and even on a recent train trip from Dijon into Seoul, I noticed that as we passed from one provincial boundary into the next, I got an update. I got a text message that updated me of the health situation there, um, which, again, is a little bit surreal for somebody coming from a place where contact tracing hasn't been taking place. But we're, we're here to talk about masks today, and you've both been mm -hmm. doing really extraordinary work on that. Hyungsub, I want to ask you first if you could just sort of lay out the landscape for us a little bit mm -hmm. about the 
kind of the public health situation around wearing masks in South Korea, going back to the beginning of this pandemic, the mm -hmm. kinds of advice that public health experts were giving, what the public was doing in that space. Okay. Uh, so I'll just uh, give you a brief overview of what happened during the last year or so. Uh, so the pandemic hit South Korea in, in, in late January of 2020. Uh, the KCDC, uh, which is the Korean equivalent of the uh, Center for Disease Control, uh, recommended what we call KF94 or KF99 masks. And to, to understand what these are, we need to go back a little bit in history and, and talk about how the standardization uh, of facial masks emerged. Uh, so KF is short for Korea Filter. Uh, it's a government uh, standard uh, that is mandated upon uh, the, the mask industry uh, in, in South Korea, uh, which was established in 2008 uh, within the context of the, the rising public concern over uh, airborne pollution, uh, part of which uh, uh, was was blown into the Korean Peninsula from from the from China the the, the continent. Uh, so when uh, the the standards began, there were three categories. Uh, there were K, there was KF eighty, uh, ninety four, and ninety nine. Uh, according to depending on the filtration efficiency, uh, and according to the standard, KF eighty uh, was for Hwangsa uh, or Asian dust. Uh, prevention, uh, uh, which had uh, a much larger particle compared to some of the other uh, particulate matter. And KF94 or 99 worked against uh, particulate matter 2.0 uh, or PM 2.0. Uh, and uh, important for our purposes, uh, it provided protection against certain viruses. Uh, therefore, it was natural for the government at that point to recommend KF94 or 99 uh, in the very initial stages uh, of the pandemic. Uh, then the confusion began in, in February, about three weeks later, uh, when the KFDA uh, announced a, a guideline for mask wearing uh, in, on February 12th. Uh, which recommended that mask for the healthy population is ineffective, uh, which was in, largely in line with the WHO recommendation at the time. Uh, so the purpose of the guideline in retrospect uh, was to uh, alleviate the, the stockpiling behavior uh, of the public, uh, freeing up enough mass for the, the frontline medical workers, which... Uh, who uh, needed uh, these masks much more than, than the, the ordinary citizens, uh, which was a sensible decision uh, at the time. However, a, a, a public debate uh, ensued, uh, naturally, uh, and eventually the, the government revised the guideline in March to emphasize the, the importance of mask wearing once again. Uh, but this time included... Uh, not only KF94 or 99, but a, a variety of different masks, hmm. uh, including cloth, uh, you know, cotton uh, masks uh, with, with certain filtration uh, filter uh, included. And uh, once mask wearing was determined as necessary for pandemic response, uh, 
uh, now it, it fell to the government to supply uh, enough number of masks to the public, uh, which led to the so-called public mask program uh, beginning in March 9th, um, which was basically a uh, distribution scheme uh, of, of these facial masks. Uh, oh, so the, the, the public can only uh, purchase a limited number of masks uh, per week uh, at a certain price. Um, and after that period, uh, a few months, um, I think it was around the summer uh, when the production capacity gradually caught up with the demand. So the, the, the public mask program was lifted and now we can uh, pretty much easily purchase masks uh, at a fairly low price uh, anywhere. That pivot where the government um, sort of cautions against using masks and then has to reverse and mm -hmm. say people should wear masks. What is? Can you capture a bit of sort of public feeling at that at that moment? Was there, you know, protest or some sort of criticism leveled at the at the government, or people understood the underlying rationale that frontline workers had needed the masks and and that's the way just the way it was. They, I I believe that people did understand. Uh, the, the situation, uh, but but still, uh, you know, it, it's basic human instinct to uh, protect yourself. So uh, people still wanted masks uh, and uh, kind of faulted the government for the inability to supply enough numbers of them uh, in the initial stages. Uh, what was the government's approach to trying to limit um, purchasing during that during that phase? I mean, they put restrictions on numbers people could buy on the internet or the supply in, in commercial establishments? So during the, the, the period of the public mask program, if you go to an online shopping mall and try to buy masks, uh, it was extremely uh, expensive. Mm. Uh, something like four or $5 per mask. I see, wow. Uh, at, uh, at, at the very peak. Uh, the, the government supplied masks uh, were uh, 1,500 won, uh, roughly you know, $1.2, $1.3. Hmm. And uh, at that price, uh, everyone could buy five masks per week. Hmm. Uh, so the government set up this very elaborate scheme hmm. where uh, the masks were supplied to these pharmacies uh, around uh, in, in every neighborhood and people had to go to these pharmacies and, uh, uh, put in their, their, uh, what do you call it? <laughs> uh, the kind of a, so, so, uh, this is like uh, a social security number yeah, sort of like an identity. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that people can identify that, that you have bought your mask for that week. I see. And just another question, just following up on this, and then Jay Wan, I'm going to bring you in on, on this as well. Um, in terms of uh, medical facilities, frontline workers, they had stockpiles already in hospitals um, to meet that need. I ask this question because you, you may know in the United States, in lots of places, medical workers were left to go out into the market and try to buy whatever they could buy on their own or even improvise because the stockpile just wasn't there. Did you face something similar here at all? 
So uh, I think that Kyungsub uh, has to um, just answer about this because I was in Berlin at the time. <laughs> yeah, Kyungsub, tell us about that. The the whether or not the stockpile the stockpile yeah. in in hospitals were dangerously low, hmm. I think at the time, uh, which uh, led to the government decision to uh, uh, discourage uh, people from stockpiling too much, um, trying to free up that that supply to uh, the hospital. I see. Oh, well. Um, Jay Wan, let me bring you in. And first of all, you were saying you were in Berlin at that time, so maybe you can even just give us a a, a quick sketch of what you were seeing there um, in in Germany. And then I think we want to turn to talking about. I mean, you had the idea of taking a kind of wider view of the history of mask wearing behavior in East Asia. Tell us first what you were seeing on the streets of Berlin mm-hmm. as you were going through this situation. Oh, uh, so that's just a big contrast uh, with uh, something happened in, in South Korea, I think. So, uh, first of all, there were no masks. It was impossible to buy masks, disinfectants, or some uh, disposable uh, gloves, too. And just everything, everything was uh, just a lack of supply. So just that there is no way to protect yourself from uh, viruses. And that's the reason why I assumed the, the German expert uh, continuously emphasized uh, to wash your hands and keep, your, uh, keep social distancing instead of uh, stockpiling um, masks or to order masks uh, outside. And what else? Until... until in fact, until uh, early March, I don't think many Germans got worried about the COVID-19 outbreak. They thought it's not uh, not so dangerous as much as Spain influenza in 1918 because it's some fatality is much lower than the some common flu that the seasonal flu and and all the situations that suddenly changed uh, around in early March or um, or between like a ninth of March when uh, Angela Merkel announced the national lockdown and just uh, everything got became uh, everything got serious uh, since then and you know that's a little bit uh, difficult for us particularly for some Asians, because we are targeted as some, some disease carriers uh, for some uh, racist uh, or, and, and just, just, I think that I have to say something uh, later in relation to uh, the rational why the reason why I just obsessed with uh, the history of masks and the representation of Asian mask wearers. And uh, those things are just based on my some personal experience in living, uh, living in Berlin.
Well, let's transition to that. And before we do, I just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with Young Sub Choi and Jaywon Yun, and we're talking about mask wearing in East Asia in the context of COVID-19, but also beyond the context of COVID-19. Jaywon, let me ask you about that. Uh, you were just saying that um, you felt like you wanted to react a little bit to maybe some ideas that you saw circulating out there about mask wearing and the connection to Asian culture. And so you convened uh, a workshop at the Max Planck Institute yep. to take that on and some scholarship in that space. Um, we'll talk about some of that scholarship as we go along, but maybe talk about why you wanted to have the workshop in the first place, mm -hmm. what you were looking to understand. Yeah, so maybe I can start from um, what I said. So when I was in Berlin in early March, uh, just mask wearing seemed an ethnic specific practices as only few Koreans and Chinese were masked with some anxiety due to the increase of racial violence against Asian communities. But on the other hand, the pictures from Seoul that I saw in Korean newspapers and my friends' social media told me something totally different as already Hyung Sub said. So uh, everyone in the public transport and outdoor are just wore a specific type of mask called the KF94 mask. And, and, and in fact, I literally, I could see the waves of masked people when I arrived in Seoul in late spring due to my job interview. And while I was going back and forth between Germany and South Korea physically and virtually, I realized that my contrasted experience just shared with other observers a bit quite differently. So many European and American news reporters in South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Japan, Singapore, and other countries also reported the masking, uh, mass masking phenomenon, but as an Asian cultural thing, by describing as uh, Asia's face mask obsession and discuss the cultural differences of mask wearing between Asians and Westerners in terms of collectivism and individualism and so on. So uh, for me, uh, this discourse of Asian mask wearing culture just obscured the different historical experiences of mask using uh, Asian countries, uh, first of all. For instance, the Western media outlets talked about the experience of SARS epidemic in the early 2000s as the rational that Asians prefer to wear masks. But according to my experience, Koreans didn't wear masks at all at the time. We had only a handful of cases during the SARS epidemic and people were quite indifferent from the SARS outbreak news from abroad. And instead, as Hyung Sam explained, Koreans began to wear face masks to protect themselves from breathing in microdust particles. And it was coincided that my senior colleague Lisa Onaga encouraged me to join, join an interdisciplinary essay project, uh, The Mask Raid, which was initiated by my, my postdoc colleague, Carolyn Weather. So I came to co-write the history of mask wearing in South Korea and Japan with Japanese historian Tomoisa Sumida. And the co-writing experience convinced me about the need for our collaborative effort to understand how face masks had become the most important part of the current pandemic governance in different historical and social contexts in East Asian countries. Fortunately, I came to know scholars 
who are working on the issues in China, South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore, and who share the awareness of the problematic nature of the present culturalist description of mask wearing in Asia. And the workshop happened last, over, uh, last October was the gathering of those scholars to challenge the current culturalist approach to the Asian history of masks. Well, thanks for that. And I, I want to just linger on one part of that for a second. The this sort of um, uh, essentialist, I guess we could call it, kind of reading from Western media and policymakers as well. I think who sort of pointed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's sort of two two layers of this problem. One is sort of pointing at East Asia as if East Asia is a sort of is a thing. I mean, and even I've been using that language today. I mean, to capture it's like you know, saying North America or the Americas. It's useful to a point, but it really flattens things out uh, in unhelpful ways, I think, to a certain degree. It assumes there's no variety among different countries and cultures. Um, And then I think it goes a little bit beyond that, um, which is that it can be essentialist and racist as well. To assume that there's just something about Asia and people who live in that part of the world that um, drives them to certain kind of collective behaviors mm-hmm. and and not others. Um, so just with that on the table, young sub, I, I wondered if you wanted to comment on any any part yeah, of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as as you just mentioned, that that rhetoric of of Asian essentialism uh, in connection to to mask wearing is mm-hmm. is kind of a double edged sword, right? So mm-hmm. on the one hand, it's like uh, you know, the Asian people are so civilized as to, you know, wearing masks. They they understand what the pandemic is, and and masks can can serve the uh, the useful purpose of preventing uh, the the spread of the virus. But on the other hand, it becomes this very racist kind of yep. uh, language that uh, uh, w- which has uh, some precedent uh, to it, right? And um, uh, covering of, of the face uh, in, in connection to um, and and ethnicity uh, is uh, is problematic, uh, and um, I'm not sure how far, as you mentioned, how far uh, this kind of framework can serve to help us understand what is going on uh, in in today's world. Just you know, one more thing I would observe about that, you know, coming from the the news coverage and. In the United States, it it was often simul- so confusing because simultaneously in one story, you would often see President of the United States being quoted and saying that you know this is an Asian virus. So locating it as a, sometimes China, sometimes Asia, but sort of generally menacing because it's from another part of the world, from North America. So there's the that sort of playing in what are very old um, tropes and racist. Um, sort of form of politics, anti-Asian politics in the United States. But on the other hand, a sort of reporting um, of, with awe and saying, look at how countries like South Korea or Taiwan have actually managed this so well. And when you get those two messages simultaneously, it's really confusing, uh, I think, for people who may even in good faith be trying to understand what's going on, but come away from it saying, well, it must just be something about that part of the world. I can't really figure it out. Jay Wan, I mean, those must have been some of the things, again, coming back to what you were saying before, you wanted to deconstruct in this workshop yep. that you put together. Yeah. 
And and just I, I need to add some some new story stat because the last year the major description for uh, Asian mask wearers like uh, just just obsessed obs- some people obsessed with um, mask wearing without any scientific backup. But uh, now uh, there some main tone just got changed. Like uh, oh they have some uh, they just successfully. Uh, so success, successfully achieved the quarantine measures comparing to uh, European and American countries. And we have to get some uh, lessons from their uh, Asian, uh, their uh, stories of mask wearing uh, historically. But I think that the both uh, just descriptions are sort of the mirror image of each other in the sense that both descriptions essentialize Asians as a single race sharing a unified culture. And that's that. That things just offers a racist gaze at Asian mask wearers as Asian origin disease carriers, as you said. And in fact, I I felt the, the, the exactly same event in in Berlin uh, only uh, after uh, the the first uh, national uh, lockdown got loosened. Mm. So, just I would like to share that experience. Can I? Mm, please. Yep. So, just uh, on that day, just I went to our shopping mall in southern Berlin with my family, and while wearing surgical masks, uh, we stood on in front of the shopping mall entrance to sort on my wife's item in her bag for a while, and then a group of unmasked people near the gate gazed at us uh, with icy stare until we finally took off the mask, giving into their pressure. And it was just a few days after young Germans inserted a Korean couple in the subway by saying happy Corona. And you know, such awful experience makes you not to wear masks to avoid racial stigma, even if you are not anti-maskers. Fortunately, we didn't get COVID while being in Berlin but we had to take health risks by not wearing masks due to such untoward pressures. And I don't think my terrible experience was an unusual case in times of corona. Jawan, thank you for sharing that, that story. And it has uh, remarkable resonance with a story that um, sociologist Rashawn Ray shared uh, in a, a COVID calls episode I did last year with with Rashawn and Sharona Pearl. And he was talking about the experience of black men in America who faced this exact problem that um, depending on where they were, uh, if they were wearing the mask, like if they went into Mm -hmm. a convenience store, for example, they became a subject of of scrutiny. Um, Mm -hmm. But if they weren't wearing the mask, they were also an object of scrutiny. Uh, So they had it, you know, it was, you had to choose which way you were going to be wrong basically, is the way he described it. And it, it seems a little synchronous with what you're just describing there in that story. Youngsub, I, I want to come back to you and, and talk a little bit more about the Korean situation, um, understanding a little bit of the background. And you already were telling us a bit of this. You were describing um, the, the mask industry and where that came from. And I know you're contributing to this collection um, that Jaywon was describing. Say a little bit more about your findings on to the South Korean disposition towards wearing face masks. Well, the the position that 
we're taking in this essay that I have prepared with, uh, together with uh, Hee-Won Kim, who is a graduate student at KAIST. Um, it's basically uh, criticizing or opposing uh, the, the cultural essentialism uh, toward masks. So, which I understand as Asians have been wearing masks for a long time, right? That's basically what uh, American or European observers have been commenting uh, at the at the initial in the initial period of the pandemic, which I think um, is fundamentally wrong. It's just historically factually wrong. Uh, Koreans have not worn masks with that much zeal until, uh, say, 2007 or 8, uh, when when PM 2.5 became uh, a hot issue, a public uh, concern in, in South Korea, um, and and even then, of course, uh, we uh, didn't have to wear masks when when the 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 pollution level w- was fairly low. It was only when uh, the pollution level went up. And uh, we could know that because uh, th- there was a system in place that alerted people uh, to uh, the high level of uh, Hwangsa or uh, or PM levels uh, in advance. So what we try to argue is and this is an exaggeration a little bit, I, I, I admit. So, but to exaggerate, I think it is possible to make an argument that uh, the uh, initially negative perception toward masks in the United States and Europe uh, in the initial phases of the, of the COVID-19 pandemic was due in part to the lack of industrial capacity uh, to produce uh, or mass produce high quality mass in a short period of time. And if uh, Americans or, or Europeans were able to uh, get or obtain, procure uh, masks in supermarkets or, or pharmacies uh, in their daily lives, everyday lives, uh, the, the negative reaction would not have been as strong as, as we have seen. So, uh, I think it is important to uh, to trace uh, how the industrial capacity had grown. And uh, we argue in the essay that the Korean mask industry had uh, skyrocketed uh, around 2006, 7, and 8 uh, when uh, the concern over airborne pollutants uh, became a public issue. And it was almost like 10 or 20 times uh, expansion of the industry at that point. It's such an important point to make, and it also raises um, nuances that we were just talking about are needed to understand on this pollution issue, for example. The, I mean, that's say a little bit more, if you would, around sort of awakening of South Korean consciousness of of the particulate matter where did where is it coming from where do south koreans believe it was coming from because there we have an issue that again forces us to talk about asia not as a monolith but as a uh, something much more complicated than that yeah it's it's very complicated and it's impossible to treat that issue in in this time span but uh of course what we call hwangsa or asian dust had been a 
uh, it's an historical phenomenon. It's, it's been going on for a long time. Hmm. Uh, so every spring, uh, the, the wind would blow east uh, from the Chinese continent, the Asian continent, uh, over the Gobi Desert, uh, bringing up a lot of yellow dust and bringing it over uh, the, uh, the, the Yellow Sea, or what we call the Yellow Sea, uh, into the, the, the Korean Peninsula. And that was a known phenomenon for a long time. Uh, but then uh, rapid industrialization of China happened uh, in the 1990s, right? And uh, there were beginnings of uh, some concerns over uh, much smaller particles uh, compared to the historic Huangsa um, uh, that had a negative impact on, on public health. Uh, so the, the, uh, the, the Korean research community kind of set up these um, observation posts to, to measure the levels of PM uh, and uh, set up a system to, to publicly alert uh, the PM levels to the public, which in turn raised uh, the public consciousness of the issue. So whenever uh, the level went up, uh, people began to to look for masks uh, as as personal protection, uh, which uh, sparked uh, the the mask industry to to grow. Uh, and when uh, the the industry began to expand, uh, the government intervened to to set up a standard, which was the one that I had described at the beginning of this conversation, uh, to set up a, a KF standard. Uh, to, to ensure the quality of, of these uh, disposable masks. Right, well, thank you for sketching out that historical trajectory and giving us a little bit more detail on, on that. Jaywon, let me return to you and I'm going to ask you to kind of speak on behalf of some of the authors that you've been mm -hmm. editing in this collection. But let's start with yep. the work about Taiwan. I know uh, Chiling mm -hmm. Wu has been written, writing about uh, SARS in Taiwan. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yes, so uh, Chiaoling Wu is a prominent STS scholar at National Taiwan University. And, and uh, at the workshop, she examined how SARS outbreak in 2003 normalized the mask, mask wearing practices among healthy people. So Taiwan had the third highest mortality and infection rates due to SARS epidemic in the world. And Wu claimed that mass masking resulted from a series of re-networking processes. So for instance, mask usage was initially considered only in National Taiwan Union University Hospital, where the first SARS cases were hospitalized. But in the late March 2003, the Taiwanese quarantine authorities issued a home quarantine orders for those who had possible contacts with SARS cases. And after that, the danger zone of SARS infection became enlarged from some local hospitals to offices, schools, public transport, and neighborhood. So uh, following the increase, increase of infection, risky places, more and more citizens began to wear masks in public places. And with the changing risk perception of danger zones and growing mask usage, despite the lack of scientific justification, Taipei Major introduced a mandatory mask rule 
for commuters using Taipei Metro. And simultaneously, the government promoted advocacy to save N95 masks for healthcare workers and people with underlying symptoms and encouraged others to use surgical masks as an alternative. And as a result, in mid-June, crowds of people wearing surgical masks on public transportation became Taiwan's national image. So according to uh, Wu's observation, Taiwanese citizens high demand for surgical masks and the government's prompt response in the current COVID-19 crisis could be understood only by taking account of the SARS experience. That's, um, if you don't mind, we can talk about some of the other ones as well. So thank you for, yep. for talking about that one. And let's um, talk about one of the other authors, uh, Lo Shi Lin, writing about the case of Singapore. Yeah, so uh, Shirino is a historian of science at National University of Singapore. And uh, her paper is worth discussing since the Singaporean government is one of the contributors to make the Asia mask wearer discourse. So the government has advertised mask wearing as a symbol of Asian communitarianism. But according to her uh, direct observation, Mask wearing is less about communitarian norms and more about norms of governance. So the Singaporean government initially discouraged mask wearing in the early phase of the pandemic following the WHO's recommendation as other countries did. Uh, but with the rising concerns about the risk of asymptomatic cases in early April, the government uh, reversed the Polish direction by forcing citizens to wear masks. And the government developed mask-centered pandemic governance by distributing masks to all residents while punishing mask rule breakers with fines and prosecution. Nevertheless, the pandemic governance was advertised in terms of communal, uh, Asian communal values by the government itself. The punitive nature of the Singaporean mask rule became invisible uh, under the ostensible surface of communitarian discourses. And based on su such perspective, Law argued for the need to focus on the normative aspect of mask wearing and its uh, biopolitical implications. Well, why don't we... Um... Youngsub, thank you for sort of hanging out here for a second while we go through a couple mm -hmm. more of these because you're getting such a beautiful sort of kaleidoscopic view uh, and taking apart the idea that there's sort of one East Asian uh, approach to face masks. But um, Jaywon, let me just stay with you on this and you could talk to us about Sean Seng Lin Lei's um, paper on the Manchurian plague and face masks. Uh, yeah, okay. So Sean Shang Lin Lei, is the established medical historian at Academy, Academia Sinica, Taiwan. And he examined the Manchurian plague of uh, 1910 and 1911, which is now well known to the global audience as an origin of the first use of a mask for anti-epidemic purposes. And that's the myth of uh, Asian mask wearers as the origin. And it was alleged that Malay-origin Chinese physician Wu Liente 
devise the gauze masks to use in containing the pneumonic plague. And the mask measure was, uh, was really successful. So that mask use quarantine measures got widespread worldwide, especially during the Spanish influenza pandemic in 1918. Lay suggested a more nuanced understanding of Wu's contribution. Uh, for instance, Uliente's mask measures was not created ex nihilo. He modeled anti-tuberculosis uh, practices, which was to avoid drumnad and contact infection for his preventive measures. In addition, the Chinese physician listed a package of precautionary measures, including a bath, mask, goggles, overalls, gloves, and other tools. So mask wearing was just one of the measures and did not have a distinct significance in preventing, uh, preventing the new plague. For this reason, Lay claims that a profound transition happened during the Spanish influenza, not during the Manchurian plague. And according to his observation, for the first time in history, during the 1918 pandemic, masks were used for reducing the infection risk caused by coughing and sneezing, which had been rarely considered risky behaviors in spreading disease. So as a result, despite the ostensible similarities between uh, the two of two face masks between the Manchurian plague and the Spanish influenza. In fact, the face mask was only used in the latter event in the way that we now do against COVID-19. You have one more in this collection, I believe, Zhang Meng writing on Shanghai. I appreciate you going into these details um, on these different cases, but tell us about this one. Oh, okay. So uh, Meng Zhang is an expert in the history of medicine at Peking University. And he skillfully showed the mask adoption process in China during the post-Manchurian plague period. So he focuses on Manchuria and Nanjing, in particular, when the second big wave of pneumonic plague occurred in North China and expanded all on railways to Nanjing in 1918. And we can see a very interesting reverse relationship between Westerners and Asians in terms of mask wearing in his case study compared to today. So against the plague, European physicians warned that Western settlers in Nanjing should wear face masks when talking with the native Chinese. The Protestant missionaries joined the effort. They produced thousands of handmade masks and ordered Westerners in their community to wear them in public. In contrast, Chinese people didn't believe the efficacy of God's mask against the epidemic and rejected to wear masks distributed by British physicians. Furthermore, even some Chinese who were uh, antagonized by the draconian quarantine method in the North, attacked whoever wore a mask, accusing them of being foreign doctors. Hmm. And coincidentally, Chinese physicians tried to let Chinese people wear masks within a belief that epidemics are more frequent in China than Europe due to unhygienic and, and uncivilized status of the Chinese people. 
And one experiment was an invention of a vinegar cotton bamboo mask based on the fact that vinegar had been widely used as a folk remedy against the plague in traditional China. And just as you can imagine, the bamboo masks were useless for anti-plague purposes, but uh, Chinese medical elites believed that they were important health education tools to teach uncivilized Chinese. And the thing is that the scientific backup was not so much important in the mask wearing movement. And the movement's main drive was the idea of racial imperiality and the degree of civilization attached to the concept of hygiene and mask. Jaywon, I'm so glad that you were motivated to pull this workshop together because I think, mm -hmm. I mean, you've done a beautiful job and I think all the authors would agree, you know, characterizing the works, the variability of the works and the historical dimensions going back into the 19th century. And that's exactly the kind of, well, nobody will be surprised I say this as a historian, but that's exactly the kind of correction that we need to understand, um, you know, what's happening when people resort to a public health measure in the midst of a pandemic and, and think it just occurred to them all of a sudden or, or that we can sort of flatten the experience to just one part of the world. So I just want to remind folks here, um, listening to COVID calls and talking to Young Sub Choi and Jaywon Hyun about face masks in the pandemic. I'm going to shift gears here a little second, uh, a little bit here uh, for a second. Young Sub, somehow in the middle of all of this, you wrote a book, um, which has come out and the title is The Moment That You Notice It's There, Technologies of Everyday Life. Can you uh, show us? I think you maybe you have a copy on hand there. Hold it up. Yeah, great. Um, what it, you were crafting essays throughout all of this about, uh, you're a historian of technology, so you're constantly thinking about those things, but you wrote these essays too. And uh, the opening essay of this book is on face masks. Uh, and uh, the essay is based on uh, the one that I wrote uh, in the, uh, if I remember correctly, in, in early February of last year, so the very beginning of the pandemic, I was writing in response to the confusion that I had described earlier uh, with the uh, C KCDC recommendation uh, coming out uh, and there was a mismatch between public behavior and, and government recommendations. I was trying to uh, cope with uh, that mismatch. Um, but uh, to uh, briefly introduce the book itself, uh, as a historian of technology, I'm interested in uh, capturing various aspects of, of the South Korean experience through, through the lens of, of things. Uh, or technological artifacts. And I believe that uh, taking this approach or history of technology tells us a lot about the, the, the human condition. Um, and uh, going back to, to facial masks, so what does the mask tell us about people? Uh, 
around the world. And the essays that that Jehuan uh, just uh, summarized for us uh, tells us uh, the the various human conditions uh, in in different parts of Asia. Uh, in the South Korean context, uh, masks have shown that uh, we expect a lot from our government. But on the other hand, we also tend to rely on, on simple solutions that we can take into our own hands. Um, so in my view, the, the two things might be contradictory, uh, but somehow they kind of mesh together in, in, a, in a weird kind of way uh, to, to, uh, to make us who we are. Uh, so I think... Uh, there are deeper uh, insights that we can gain by by focusing on on you know uh, important things that that come up in in public discussion, and uh, the the series of essays that I've collected in this book uh, is a a beginning of an attempt uh, to do that for uh, for South Korea. I wonder if could you choose one uh, more example of a technology that you've focus on the sort of technologies of everyday life? Uh, well, the essay that I like the most is on apartments, mm. high-rise apartments, which is a very prominent feature of uh, lodging uh, in South Korea and especially in, in Seoul. Um, I am of a generation that almost lived my entire life in high-rise apartments. I was born uh, in 1974 uh, in a city called Pohang, which is near, uh, not very near, but but near near Busan. Uh, it's an industrial town, a steel uh, city, uh, where a very large steel company is, and my father worked for uh, the, the steel company located in Pohang. And uh, the, the first house that I lived in was a, a five-story apartment built by the company. And ever since, uh, well, soon after that, I, I moved uh, up to Seoul and um, lived in, a, in another uh, apartment and apartment after that. So I talk about all these uh, experiences and kind of compare that to uh, the, the different meanings of, of high-rise apartments in different parts of the world, say in France or in the United States, where mm -hmm. high-rise apartments are regarded as uh, low-class uh, public housing. Uh, and uh, my personal experience with high-rise apartments were, were somewhat different than, than that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then I kind of go into uh, this discussion of, and since Scott, you have moved to South Korea, you may have heard about the uh, the rising cost of housing uh, in, in South Korea in, in recent uh, recent years, uh, and how uh, apartments has become the symbol of. Uh, economic desire, right. uh, rising price mm -hmm. uh, to make a profit off an investment that you're making at, at 
a, a certain point in your life. Hmm. So uh, I'm trying to tie together all these different threads into uh, a, a single essay uh, using uh, the apartments as, as, as a focusing device. Well, the, congratulations on the book and thanks for yeah. describing that. And it makes me, it reminds me, one of my very, very favorite books when I was in graduate school and I've returned to it so many times is Roland Barthes' book called Mythologies, mm. um, in which he takes a kind of a similar approach to what you did. He sort of chooses uh, guidebooks or French wine. Mm. And he something that's very much in circulation that you think you understand the meaning of is very stable. And then he kind of unpacks that right. um, as a way to explore power relations, basically, mm. and historical um, inheritances. One, one thing I wanted to um, sort of reflect a little bit more with you on is, is um, this experience of having been in a lockdown situation and then spending so much more time at home. Uh, and that's, I think, mostly been a global phenomenon um, throughout the pandemic. It, it, did that play a role in this? I mean, you were just inside more with your stuff, uh, it, it, in a sense. I mean, that's kind of making it... Um, less intellectual than you probably are. But I found myself over the last year, I just spent a lot more time at home and got to know the physical environment in ways that maybe I hadn't before the pandemic. Well, as as a dis disaster expert, uh, you, you would probably, you know, heartily agree with uh, the statement that pandemic affects people in different ways. Mm. Uh, uh, academics on the tenure track are are the more fortunate uh, among uh, the, the the general public uh, in terms of how the pandemic has affected our our everyday everyday lives. Uh, uh, I was able to teach most of my classes online, as I've mentioned. Uh, so my my salary was not affected, uh, as opposed to the the small businesses. Uh, many of which are are going out of of business. Uh, a, a direct impact of the pandemic because people are are spending less time um, outside, uh, uh, eating uh, in in restaurants uh, is well nowadays it's gotten much better, but but still. So, uh, so during the last year or so, I've been able to do a lot more because I, I don't have uh, uh, meetings uh, uh, or appointments, uh, um, you know, uh, meetings with friends. Uh, the, the Koreans are well known for their, their drinking sprees uh, in the evenings. Uh, a lot less of that uh, gave me a lot more time to, uh, to think about things and, uh, and, and to write. So this is one of the products that came out of the pandemic, I guess. Jaywon, uh, just bring you in on on that. I don't know if you've had a chance to to see that that book yet, but you know, some of these things probably resonate with you as well. The sort of rediscovery of the of the material technological environment around us, face masks being what we've been talking about today, but there's other sort of artifacts of the of the pandemic as well. There's a student here at, at Keist um, who's working on a project about uh, vinyl gloves. I mean, the, mm -hmm, the materiality, mm -hmm. you know, Kim is doing that. What the materiality 
of the pandemic is is real. And that some of them are very familiar yeah. things that you reinterpret and others of them are new things maybe that we haven't been exposed to before. I don't know about your experience in that regard. Yeah. Mm. Maybe, yes, just uh, through, just I'm trying to or pursue a new type of the case studies for the history of masks. And I discovered a new types of artifacts, just maybe, I'm sorry, I, I think that I missed your, your point. So can you just repeat again your question? Mm -hmm. It would be better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, just asking the same question to you that about what Young Sub and I were discussing about how something like a mask becomes more meaningful in your in your life. Mm -hmm. You spend more time with these objects and we think about them more. Has that also been your experience? I mean, you've been writing about masks yeah. as an object of analysis, mm -hmm. but it's also mm -hmm. just a part of your life now too, right? Yes, so yes, I get it. So maybe this infectant uh, that I have to talk about is because just it, <laughs> I don't want to uh, just expose my uh, hygiene hygiene practice, but anyway, the disinfectants uh, changed my uh, way of life, in particular, uh, washing hands, because hmm. just since I got it, in particular, uh, after coming back to South Korea, because in Germany, disinfectants are really expensive and it's uh, hard to uh, approach, at least in the early pandemic period. Uh, I really enjoyed using that one a lot. And in fact, it's sometimes instead of washing my hands, I just just using that one. And uh, that is sort of the daily necessity in my life. So whenever I go and I just brought, uh, I bring that, I, I, bring, I bring the disinfectant and wash my hand and wash uh, the table and and that that is another some material uh, stuff or materiality that I feel uh, totally seen after the the COVID nineteen outbreak. Just a reminder: you're listening to COVID calls. I'm almost up on time today with my guests. In fact, I've kept them over time, but it's been an interesting discussion uh, talking to Young Sub Choi and Jaewon Yun. I just want to close out um, here. You know. This project that you've both contributed to and um, talking about face mask wearing in different parts of East Asia, um, but the pandemic is still going. I mean, as we talked about at the top of the uh, the discussion today, a fourth wave is mm -hmm. moving um, through South Korea now. Vaccination effort is just getting started. Um, what do you think about the research agenda going forward with this? Jaywon, let me ask you this first. Um, Future questions we need to be asking about face masks or other aspects of the pandemic mm -hmm. in, in South Korea or in other parts of East Asia? Maybe just, I think that uh, I can focus on the, the history of a mask because uh, I mm -hmm. uh, deal with that story. And uh, just medical historian, Augusta Brazelton, Brazelton at University of Cambridge, one of commentators for the workshop suggested uh, doing more contextualized and materiality focused approach as a future research direction for the, the Asian history of mask. And just based on her insight, I think that we can ask like in which context masks were used or not used 
or what's social, political, cultural, economic, legal, and material conditions play out in producing and using a specific type of mask. And uh, just uh, following search questions, now I'm developing some new, uh, some new, new research topic. And for instance, even in South Korea, although Hyungsub and I only talked about the recent mask wearers uh, against the particulate matter and viruses, there have been different types of mask wearers using various kinds of masks, in fact. Uh, for instance, uh, Korean miners cover their face with wet towels until the 1960s and begin to wear those masks during the, during the 1970s. And in the next decade, democratic uh, protesters wore masks and swimming goggles to protect themselves from tear gas uh, sprayed by the authority and government police on the one hand and from exposing their identity on the other. And school students lived near pollutant factories in the 1970s, 80s also wore closed masks while at school to put up with pollution odors. Now I believe that it's a time to look at the multiplicity of mask wearing within a local context and place the multiple histories within the wider regional and global trends. And the global trends in this example could be the history of production and circulation of uh, artifacts like tear gas, not only, mm. Mm, as well as masks, and the movement of polluting factory facilities from the United States and Japan to South Korea, or the democratic movements in Asia generally. And by doing so, I think that we could see connected but differentiated histories of mask wearing and its surroundings. And um, just, I think that maybe we can do also so, sort of the comparative study of anti-maskers between South Korea and the US. And because even in Korea, especially during the colonial rule of Japan and the early post-liberation period, some nationalist Koreans registered to wear masks because they considered mask wearing a Japanese colonizer's practice. So just, I mm. think that there are so many subjects remain understudied and we, we need to study together while being aware of both local context and global connections. Well, thanks for that. That last topic particularly sounds fascinating um, to go mm. further with. Hyung-sub, I'm gonna give you the last word on this. Anything you wanted to react to, to what Jaywon was just saying or any other things on your mind about how, how to push the research forward in these well, areas? I'll, I'll just uh, end by calling for more comparative and transnational studies, uh, not only about masks, but uh, about pandemic response uh, in, in, in general. Uh, and there can be historical or contemporary cases that are worth uh, examining. Uh, and the essays that uh, are under review at EASTS are, are just the beginning of uh, some of these studies. Uh, so just focusing on masks, um, you know, different countries had different excuses for reactivating uh, the, the use of, of facial masks uh, through uh, even in contemporary history. So uh, Jaehwan just mentioned uh, SARS uh, epidemic uh, in, when was it, 2001, uh, which affected Hong Kong and Taiwan. 
Japan is also well known for its public mask wearing behavior. Um, uh, probably the most masked society in 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 Asia, mm-hmm. uh, and and in 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 that context, pollen allergy uh, was an important issue. Uh, so different nations and different countries had uh, different responses to the the problems that they were facing, and face masks were kind of called upon to uh, to to solve uh, the problem. So it'll be important to kind of compare uh, the different uh, life cycles of masks in different countries. Uh, and of course, the, the transnational study is also important, uh, especially in regards to uh, the transnational supply chain underlying the, the global production and distribution of masks. Yeah. Uh, so why did the United States uh, fail to supply masks to its public? In part because uh, a large part of the manufacturing capacity was was outsourced to to Asia, right? right? So uh, this kind of uh, globalization, the context of globalization, also had uh, an impact on uh, how we, uh, as you know, members of the global society, uh, had experienced the pandemic. There's about 15 books in what you both just described there, um, and hopefully some people who've been listening will be inspired to pick up some of these topics. I just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and more frequently we'll be having these 5.30 p.m. Korea time discussions. I want to remind you all, um, also you can join me on Monday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be talking to video game designer Ian Bogost, and we'll be talking about video games and gaming and the pandemic. And I want to thank my guests again today for this really lively, great conversation, Young Sub Choi and Jaywon Hyun. Thanks for the work you're doing, and thanks for your time today. Okay. Thank uh, you It's very been much. a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. I'll see you Monday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time.